Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. I'm Colin. And I am Jace. And tonight we are going to be talking about The Idiot's Lantern, which is, I believe, the seventh episode of Series 2. Alright, I'm just going to jump in here with uh, something I really hated about this episode. Oh, I felt oh, wow. like they uh, trivialized abuse in it. I don't think that was their intention, but I felt that's how it came out, because... They very much, like, were depicting at the beginning of the episode that the one, the main guy was abusing, at least verbally abusing his wife and child. But then the way that she responded throughout the episode of it, it seemed that it was just the doctor came in and had one interaction with the family. And then suddenly she was no longer, you know, an abused woman. And so, you know, threw him out and took charge of everything and didn't seem to really have any sort of conflict there or you know difficulty overcoming those those emotions in that situation and she also like it just seemed like there was a massive disconnect there that kind of made the whole thing seem like you could solve it in a conversation I really disagree i mean maybe there are some connotations with that but i think they they showcased you know some abusive times of of the era that i feel like may be more common but more so I feel like the real character development happened only after Mr. Connolly's wife realized that Mr. Connolly was the one who uh, sucked the government on on his on her mother and everybody else in the neighborhood. That was the turning point. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't the doctor and Rose coming in and you know making a statement and you know showing that hey it's okay for you to you know uh, push back against gender roles and you know. Abuse. I think it was more so that enough was enough. Anyone else um, want to weigh in on that? <laughs> I would say that in this particular instance, I, I think we had only a 45-minute episode to go into great detail with this. I think the reaction that, that Rita had, um, I think was somewhat appropriate and I think maybe this was something that was welling up inside of her over time so this but she was gave- kind of towards the end of her her straw and then as soon as she finds out oh my husband has been betraying everybody in the whole neighborhood it kind of empowered her to just switch yeah I kind of agree I think that the there was so much going on to the on in the episode that we didn't really have time to really go into depth with the relationship but I feel like how they handled it made sense for you know the time they had allotted to that situation because what I saw was I saw a stereotypical like representation of what toxic 
a toxic man, especially from that era, is and how they were he was abusing the wife and the husband and the doctor steps in and makes him basically feel like this big by saying, Well, I'm not listening and just completely overpowers him and basically is like, um, excuse me, you're making her do the work. Um, your queen, sir, would she be around doing all the housework? And then he suddenly was got him to go over here and do all of air quote her work. And she probably saw that as, you know what, the doctor had a point, you know, so in a way the doctor was kind of stopping all of her sexism and had him like basically right in the palm of his hand to where he even realized that like, wait, what am I doing? And that's like absolutely crazy. And in a way, through those kind of things, I kind of agree with Michael. Like I've been in the place where I've dealt with an obscene amount of abuse. And then it's not like a huge moment sometimes for some people where they're like, I'm going to just explode, crash down. Sometimes you just have a moment to be like, you know what? I'm just done. And you just walk away. And I feel like that whole scene was just kind of very empowering for her for that reason. And I feel like that was a good representation of her just stepping back and just being like, you know what? Screw this. Okay. Fair enough. We had a very interesting alien in this one and the, uh, in the wire, which is of course a character that got a lot of criticism back when this first came out. And one of the issues I had with her was that she seemed a little over the top. All this hungry, I'm, I must eat now. I'm going to feast upon you it all. It was so overdramatic. Her- thus. Yeah. It, was, it was not the greatest. I don't know if it was the writing part of it or more the performance, but I think it just, that part took away because I felt at the beginning of the episode, she was very eerie. And I liked the more subtle kind of like, I'm, I'm just here on the television talking to you. What you. What's your problem? Right. <laughs> but then it just got to the point where it was a Scooby-Doo kind of villain. Feed me, feed me, feed me, like you're like an over-exaggerated ghost. Yeah, I was yeah. Seymour should be added to that. Feed me at one point. Exactly, and at the very end, it, it just evolved into like even at her demise, she was just like no, no. <laughs> it it just like was kind of such a trope of a classic villain in yeah, the motivations, and, and, that, and that unfortunately, <laughs> I think took away from this episode for me, and and I think that's why. In my mind's eye, the family story actually kind of took center stage for a lot of people. It actually, it was a little bit more fun. There was a lot more good interaction between Rose and the doctor, Rose or Rose and the family, and the doctor and the family. And I think that really kind of, and the family and the family, I should say. And uh, that's, I think, where the emphasis was for a lot of people in this story. I think and so, this, too. And despite her, like acting towards the end of it where it did get very Scooby-Doo and both Goosebumpsy. I thought it was pretty clever of her character to um, use the electrical activity in the brain to manifest in an episode revolving around TV and actual real-life kind of technology. Kind of how they merged those two worlds together. I thought that was kind of cool. The setting was interesting, too, because this is took place in 1953, right around the the, the uh, coronation of Queen Elizabeth II and um, obviously it made sense for the wire to want to do that uh, to use that time frame to actually absorb all these people that well, she wanted. What I didn't get about it was that like okay like kind of as she was at the beginning the sort of cold and calculating villain you know seemingly 
then like ju- jumped to this whole hungry, hungry thing. I felt like when she was in that hungry mode, like why would if she's really that desperate, why wouldn't she just be attacking everyone all at once? Like why even be like discreet about it? It sounded like she didn't have the power and resources to do it. That was but she could suck people out of random TVs. I'm just surprised that she didn't, you know, suck more people out intermittently. My my thing is my, like my best interpretation for that to give most credence to the situation would be she was clearly reduced in power. Maybe she could only do it one at a time. But didn't you know, eating the people point. give her more power? Like, shouldn't there have been a, like an increase or something? It seemed like I, there was a disconnect. Like there was people to get a. A corporeal form, but she needed this portable, you know, device and a cell phone tower to really get a widespread. I think what it kind of was was she. I think personally, how I saw it was that it would be kind of odd to just steal like a bunch of random people randomly, even though that's kind of what happened in the beginning at a small scale. I just feel like she didn't want to really put in the effort of just snatching people up whenever there still happened to be a TV on, but use an event in which everyone in London would be at the TV at the same time. It just seemed a lot easier than snatching people one at a time. Well, I guess, although she then had to utilize that plan through a human, that took a lot more time. So I I can kind of see both points of view here. It was kind of an odd plan. Um, I mean, it, it makes sense to a degree because she is using a very large televised event to get as many people as possible. But, I don't know. Yeah, I think just past her, like, for me, the, the real villain was that human helping her. You know, that's that's someone that I could see, like, that's a real person that's going along with, um, you know, something he knows to be wrong out of fear with no real promise of success, too. That, that seemed like a much more realistic and, um, you know, villain with some nuance. I, I feel like if there's a, a villain that I really came away with you know, from the story, it was it was him, the the TV Magpie. salesman, Quagmire. Quagmire. Magpie. <laughs> Why did you say Quagmire? I thought that might be his name. <laughs> Quagmire. Magpie. I thought it was um, tomato. interesting. Something that Michael just said about you know she waited for a big television event to get everyone. That's like exactly what happened in in Fear Her, also. Yeah. Where you've got a, a little girl who uses a big television event to get everyone by drawing them. I guess who really likes TV? <laughs> Interestingly enough, this episode was written by Mark Gattis, and this is definitely a different take on, on Doctor Who. Um, this is not your typical Doctor Who story. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of going back to the 1950s, so I think the setting was actually pretty fun um, in that regard. That's why. I brought up the setting to begin with. Yeah, I, I think it was a nice, um, nice new flavor of a time period, you know, uh, at this stage in Doctor Who. But still, you know, it always bothers me when you have a TARDIS and you fail to get out of London. <laughs> Definitely. I have a question for y'all on this one. Uh, since we've kind of talked about it a little bit with the political kind of sense, I was uh, since we've already done all the Jodie Whittaker uh, series. And that was criticized for being over-political and preachy. This certainly seems to have a certain political preachy side or vibe to it as well. As a matter of fact, was criticized for that at the time. Really? So I was wondering what your all's take was on the preachiness of this with regards to 
how it came about? That's a good question, and maybe it's because we're already, you know, uh, some 15 years or so in the future from when this episode aired. Um, but I just watching it, I'd be surprised that anything here was controversial. Um, That's how I felt, too. Yeah, I feel like, you know, clearly we've evolved in our customs and family values and how we treat each other. It was a lot of that uh, conversation that I think, like, Tommy had with his father right there. It's like, you fought against all of these things, but can't you realize that that's what you're doing right now? Like, I deserve to have this openness, the freedom to be me and express myself. And I, I think, you know, even drawing that back to a connection and as to why... Um, the mother like left and, and changed the situation. I think that was eye-opening to, you know, not just the audience, but to her as well. Because I, I think, you know, it, at some point she may have been uh, giving credence to, hey, this is a military man, you know, he's tried to sacrifice a lot. I'm sure he's been through a lot. But um, it came down to the point where I think she realized that there was something not right about the situation. I think that was a really powerful message um, of the episode. But I, I took it really to be... Um, very palatable to, to everyone. But of course, you know, I, I kind of would think that um, that would be the same case with the modern era of Doctor Who as well in terms of a lot of the straight up messaging. But I, I don't think that they tried to sacrifice any um, any plot in, in favor of, you know, some sort of a message, which I think sometimes it can it can seem like that's, ha- that's happening, you know, in more recent seasons. Unless the message that they were sending was about domestic abuse in which case they did sacrifice a significant amount of the plot towards that message because that was the majority of the plot but I don't know what was the controversial political thing well a lot of people were suggesting that it was kind of preachy with regards to women standing up for themselves not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing I'm just saying this is just the message that was received at the time um, and probably the manner in, in which the Doctor and Rose kind of came in they kind of had a little bit of an overtop moment when of course the Doctor's yelling in the face of the guy he, the Doctor almost takes on the same persona as the guy at that point so it kind of, I don't know if that I mean it was kind of a, a, a that's a good point that was, kind of moment. Yeah, yeah that was powerful Like I, the Doctor rarely yells at, at laymen you know, who aren't, you know, the clear enemies of the episode um, in, in such a manner. So it it did, I think, give it more power there in a situation where you don't typically see the doctor, um, you know, giving that much emotion and um, determination, you know, in, in a situation. I mean, I can see where it was political for that reason. Going back onto what Shelby was saying towards the beginning, like, you know, there could have been women watching this who are in that same situation and just would have been like well it's not that easy to leave an abusive relationship like how dare they depict it as being something you can just walk away from like it's something that just takes a part of you it's not something you can just step away from you're trapped you can't really do anything you're being manipulated you know and not many cases people say oh this was my grandma's house leave yeah exactly yeah, and you have to wonder, you know, like, definitely I feel like I have the sense of not having lived in this era, that it was very hard for, I think, women who left their husbands to be financially stable as well. Um, you know, that's that's, that's something that wasn't even brought up or considered here. And I, I think socially that's, stable as well. Yeah, that too. And, and I think that's a lot of the true barriers, you know, that probably, you know, even today, you know, keep people I don't, from... I don't- 
I don't think it was brought up in this particular instance because they were living in the house that the grandmother owned. Um, right. And that's a character we haven't even touched on yet. The poor grandmother who gets her face completely removed and becomes the horror trope of the episode. <laughs> she tried to warn us about TV. She tried to warn us. <laughs> I know, she tried. Not going to lie, that was kind of uh, disturbing to see someone without an entire face. Yeah, and yes. if I may, I have something to say about that and how messed up it kind of is. So the whole thing about the wire was that she feeds off of electrical activity in the brain and takes their essence in a way, and that being their faces. And if you think about it, what does it mean to take away one's face. It means to basically wipe away one's identity and sense of self. This visual representation of wiping the brain of its electrical activity is kind of dark in the sense that you're robbing humanity of the very thing that kind of makes humans human and that, that that's the mind and the ability to actually think. And without our minds, we would essentially just be like sacks of flesh and kind of just being slaves to the mind. And that kind of brought me back to the Cybermen to a degree, only in the sense that the Cybermen, Cybermen have no problem ridding um, humanity of the limitations of the body in an effort to preserve the essence of what they believe makes us human, that being the brain or the mind, but just kind of went at it the wrong way. But the reality is you can't really have one without the other. So where the Cybermen are kind of trying to preserve the brain because the body is useless, in this episode, it's kind of the opposite, and both kind of still pretty eerie. Well, I mean, it is a little bit the same, though, because the wire is taking the face and the mind of the people. It just doesn't care about the people it's leaving behind, so in a way, it's discarding the rest of it. Yeah, it's the same, and it's different, Yeah, you know, because they're still there, but they're not. And the Cybermen are still there, but they're not. They are the brain, whereas yeah. in this episode, they are the bodies, but they're not either. They're yeah. not whole anyway. And I feel like it's it's funny because here, you know, what, what what when you say that, it really makes me think of, you know, the power of faces and how humanizing they really are. You know, because even if you see a Cyberman, Cybermen have faces. They're, they're cold. They steal. They're steel. But you have the eye sockets and you have a mouth. They don't need to be there. But still, you know, they, they talk and you get a sense of you know, an individual from them. From, from this, you, you know... know Doctor Who monsters that are just, like, worms, like, walking around them, you know? Like, there's some form of, you know, even though it's not very realistic, because the reality is aliens could look like worms, they could look like butterflies, they could look like dinosaurs, but we as people just need those yeah. things. And we're actually, like, very unique, you know, in, in the animal kingdom um, to have such expressive faces. You know, we, we connect with each other that way. Well, you know, we... Yeah. Uh, we, we blush, we smile, we do other things, we sweat, and it's it's all very um, emotive. You know, we can't help but connect to that stuff. So when it really goes away, along with your mind, you know, it's it just seems like a whole extra step. You know, it's hard for anybody to, you know, empathize. I think this goes back to kind of like the Jurassic Park ideal, uh, idea is that you've got these dinosaurs and, and yeah, they're kind of scary and yeah, they're fun to watch on on the big screen, but they don't have a whole lot of performance behind them. They don't have any emotion, or they don't, and they don't, certainly don't have much of a facial. Um, emo- they don't emote emotions through their face. Um, so it's kind of like that's why a lot of sci- science fiction uses human-like characteristics on their aliens, so that they can actually get a performance from another actor 
which is actually going to touch your soul and your heart a lot more so than if you were to just watch an amoeba that's that's there and, and in the way or t- and talking. So anything that deals with animals or things that aren't really showing that emotion or, or that, that emotional intelligence, that it's harder to relate to that kind of thing. Yeah. And even like in Star Trek, when they run into like those random anomalies in space that really don't even have a form sometimes, they still kind of put words in its mouth and give it a presence, you know? You know, I feel like The Wire did that for themselves, you know, here in this situation. They, yeah. they, there's, the, the Wire was not that lady that we saw through that television screen, but, you know, took on the form to, you know, connect and, and have that sort of emotive relationship. I, I thought that was a really creative way to do it rather than, you know, really anthropomorphizing, you know, any conscious being that we might have a relationship with in the future. One thing... I, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to change the subject, so do you have something else on this? No, no. Okay. Um, one thing I thought from just a practical standpoint is that, like, why didn't any of the people, like, upon encountering a loved one whose face vanished, like, why didn't somebody try to cut open the skin where their mouth would be to see if there's still a mouth behind it so that they could feed them so that they could survive? Like, I would be you know, or, or poke them air holes or something. Like, I, I mean, I, I just feel like my reaction would be that there's, even if they don't have the face, they'd still have a mouth and a di- digestive system and lungs and everything. How do they breathe during this time? That's a good, a question. Very good question. I mean, my, my best, you know, you know, ch- most charitable interpretation might be is that most people would call professionals to do the surgery rather than cutting it open themselves. Well, okay. And when that happens, they get taken away, you know, and, and put into the cages, so on and so forth. But then, but then also, like how did the people being. breathe when they had no air holes? Well, I mean, an alien sucked off their face. How they are alive was probably through some kind of alien means. Okay. I mean, I don't understand okay. why okay, they were true. kept alive. They really didn't need to be kept alive in this light. Creepiness factor. Yeah. Well, maybe she was still feeding on them at the time, but that was not very well explained. Yeah. And it doesn't, and you're right, it doesn't make sense how they would be alive still without air, oxygen, and their electric, and their electricity within the brain, which is what she was stealing. And feasibly even just food and hydration, you know, for some period of time, you know, it wasn't just this all happened overnight. Plus, why would she need their faces? Just like a metaphor, make it creepier, I guess. Yeah, it seemed like it's a byproduct, you know, what she was doing. I must admit that I love how, at the end, it's um, both the Doctor and Tommy that save the day. Tommy, who's been belittled by his father, ends up becoming one of the most important persons in this story because he's the one that actually notices that the converter blows on the on the new Betamax uh, <laughs> recording device that the doctor has created, which is kind of a cool little time travel thing. He's like, okay, don't tell anybody about this, please. Well, you know, you know, also on that note, how would he fit an entire intelligent entity onto a VHS? I don't know, but this is a story that actually was explored before in the audio series. Uh, the Sixth Doctor and Perry story um, where this entity lived within a recording. And this, it was kind of cool because, and very eerie, but the entity started rearranging the recording uh, to, to 
to actually help itself within the world that it was in at that moment. And um, so I don't think this is something that necessarily has to be explained. It's more of an audio or and or a visual kind of creature that lives within the electrical field or the sound field. And and that's just something that's beyond our own explanation. Okay. And I'm I'm kind of okay with that because it could actually happen. Yeah, Me too. I'm, I'm I'm often uh, a little bit more receptive to when they don't give explanations versus when they give bad and incomplete explanations. Yeah, that's even worse. Like, why did why did the wire have to have a physical form that it was trying to achieve? Why couldn't it have just been originally an electrical based being that just needed to feed on the electricity of others? I mean, it could have. I mean, it, then... it just I just feel like that would have made it a more interesting creature and it wouldn't have really changed the plot at all well magpie might have different thoughts about you know that's helping him out um he just wanted to be a real boy yeah and i i thought you know maybe if anything the reason why you also steal some faces is because you're trying to build a corporeal form you know maybe out of some face material as well you know that was the real substance that she was taking besides the electrical activity yeah that's true One thing I wondered was, why did the doctor actually put, have to put his coat on when he went back to the TARDIS to, when, uh, to, um, when he went off to, to find Magpie? Because there was that one quick costume change there. I'm just like, was that really necessary? Did he really need those pockets so desperately? <laughs> went way over my head. Yeah, I, I didn't, didn't even, even notice. notice. <laughs> but that, I mean, that seems like a, <laughs> a plot hole to some degree or an unintentional happening. Something that's confused me that is a common theme probably throughout most Doctor Who episodes that kind of was threw itself in my face was the sonic screwdriver. Remember that scene when he was going into that room with all those faceless people and the people were just in the room like the bad guys or the humans or whoever and he went to open up the gate and he used his sonic. Like, does the noise that the sonic makes like, not become an inconvenience to him. Like, imagine if those students heard, it's like, oh, there's someone here, there's some kind of alien-like noise, and then his whole cover is blown. Well, I mean, it's a sonic device. It has to make sound. That's the point. I know, but, like, that could get him into a lot of trouble more oh, yeah. practically, you know? Yeah, I think like, with, like, really... With really high or low frequencies, you know, I, I think a bunch of creatures, you know, around our... Um, you know, audio frequency may not pick up on these things. So it, it may not often be a problem, but I think if you're a sound or an electricity creature, clearly it's, it's a big thing because usually the screwdriver is not portrayed as a weapon. But one of my favorite lines for this episode was, you know, the wire talking to the doctor when he pulls out his screwdriver. He's like, he's armed. He's armed he's and clever. <laughs> he's clever. <laughs> like, yeah, we know this. <laughs> yeah. Well, the screwdriver is it's a powerful weapon. It's an armament. It certainly can mess a lot of tech stuff up. One one other big important plot point here is the importance of Rose to the Doctor. Um, and I yeah. want to point out that the Doctor, as soon as he learns that Rose's face has been stolen from her, he has like this switch inside him that just changes him. And he's like, he turns into a completely different person. He's not and, playing anymore. No, he's not playing anymore. Now there's no power on Earth that will stop me. You can see the fire like in his eyes of how angry he was. He's like, I am getting to the bottom of this and nothing is going to stop me. I was like, oh, okay. Here you go. 
well, I think it's about time we could start raiding. Ratings, ratings, ratings. All right. So, Michael, remind me, what was this episode called? The, it, uh, the Idiot's Lantern. The Idiot's Lantern. Is that what they used to call television back in the day, I imagine? That's probably what it was referring to, but also the father ends up being called an idiot in the end, too, so there may be a slight reference to that in the title. Well, it's an idiot's name for an episode, if you ask <laughs> <Yes>. me. <laughs> I think they could have done a little bit better in, in that regard, so... That, that's minus a half a point, just right off the bat, <laughs> right off the top. Um, this episode, actually, I thought it had a, a decent flow to it. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I was sucked in. I, I watched the whole thing. I didn't have the need to grasp for my cell phone at any point. Um, but there was a lot that I just felt was lacking. You know, it's kind of a, um, a, a trope of a doctor story. You know, you go to another era, something else is happening. You know, slowly there's a mystery and there's trouble and there's an over-the-top kind of a trope of a villain that's involved that you need to save the day in. But I love the creepiness factor of the, the stealing of faces and identities. And I really did like, you know, Tommy and his story with his father and his mother and how that laid out. What I think, you know, also I didn't take it as preachy because even though the plot was centered on it, you know, it was a logical conclusion and a powerful message based on the story of the plot of this family and everything else that was going on in the situation as well. And they connected that family um, to the greater story of, of the stealing of faces. Um, but honestly, there, there's just no, no big wow factor in this episode for me. Um, while it didn't have any too many major, you know, plot holes or problematic, um, you know, points in my mind, um, it's going to be hard for me to rate it too highly. For this, I'm going to give it a five and a half out of ten. Wow. Okay. So my turn. So I really liked how they related the whole like you know electrical activity into like stealing it from the brain. I thought that was a really creative way of kind of connecting two worlds that you typically wouldn't connect. And I also liked the symbolism of unnecessarily kind of just stealing the faces off of people and having them just be like corpses that are just there and almost unhuman to a degree because we talked about how, you know, our facial features is kind of what makes us be able to relate to each other. So for those reasons, I really liked the episode. I thought it was pretty eerie for those reasons. I liked how they hit on um, a realistic problem in the time era, which was, you know, abusive relationships and like sexism I feel like there wasn't a lot of plot holes. There's a lot of questions, which I kind of like, as opposed to bad, you know, resolutions, as Colin said. So for that reason, I'll give it probably a six. All right. Um, I thought this episode was okay. Um, I think that, I mean, I did enjoy the whole story with the family. I think that it was a bit unrealistic given the time frame over which it was depicted, but... You know, fine. I could see how that could that could potentially happen. And but I thought like the whole the whole plot with the alien didn't really. I mean, it's not like it didn't make sense in the like story wise. It just didn't make sense scientifically in any way. Like, and they didn't even. It actually bothered me that they didn't attempt to explain it at all, just because it was so sporadic. Like, it didn't. It's not like it just automatically made sense. It's like. Why would why are those people still alive? How could they be if they have no electrical signals left in their brain? Why take the faces? 
how, you know, did they cope with all the face? Like, it just, I, I liked the idea of there being, you know, of the creepy faceless people. It was very eerie, but the whole plot around that, that situation just didn't add up at all. It was just kind of like, we wanted this scary thing here and let's throw something together to try to explain it. So I am going to give this one a four. Oof. Wow. I also didn't think it was, you know, a super gripping or good character development. Rose was hardly in it. Will Michael bring up the average? Will he not? Let's find out. The domestic approach was this particular episode. Um, This episode, I think, really kind of had a good Dr. Rose um, relationship within it, which actually kind of helps boost the episode a little bit. Um, And then their interaction with the family, definitely. I think that, like I said, that was the center storyline. As far as aliens go and as far as the main plot goes... It was lackluster. I I do agree with Shelby that it wasn't the greatest of all episodes. Um, I'm going to give this a 6 out of 10, though, because I think there is enough... There's definitely enough story here, and Mark Gaddis did kind of play with our emotions on this, and that's why uh, it it does kind of hit home in in many ways. And so, 6 out of 10. Mm. All right, uh, let us know what you think. You can email us at thehoovianreview at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I think we might be on YouTube if you're clever enough to find it. We <laughs> do have a video of at least two All right. Three. Well, y'all come back now. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let's keep this going. I have to say something. Okay. Say you have to say just piggybacking on what Shelby said, because what she, what she was rating it as and what she said during her rating was pretty interesting. But what I said is that, you know, we expect all the answers from episodes sometimes, but sometimes, like, less is more. Like, for example, Capaldi's episode, Listen, was great, and we didn't need more, but... My favorite of all time. But it would have yeah. ruined the episode if we had been given more. Exactly. But I'm saying is that sometimes less is more, and sometimes you need more to make the episode. And I feel like this episode is good if you didn't think about it. I I feel like even then it wasn't phenomenal. And and also I just kind of think that, like, it it was just sort of like they didn't think about it. They just kind of threw that plot together. It was like a clear afterthought. Some of the magic, I think, of not giving all the details is to make you think about it. You know, you get to pick up the reasons, and you get to have the debate with yourself about what's probable, what might not be. And I think it's really fun to kind of live in that gray area and let the audience have some freedom through it. Yeah, but they didn't give us, like, any of the details for it. No, not not so much, but I think in Listen, that was a great illustration of, like, that there could be a real creature there. There could be not. Um, But they gave an explanation all the way through in Listen, is that he was like, here's my hypothesis, and then... Also, this could also explain what's happening. Or yeah, but also... we didn't explain how a creature could have perfect camouflage or any mechanics of it. Or um, you know, There's a lot about the episode that just was not explained and was left for the audience's in- interpretation. Yeah. I think, I, I think that Mark Gaddis, for this episode, wanted to make it more of a character piece. And he was concentrating 
more so on the relationships between people. But if you're an artist creating art, which is this episode, you kind of want to, you know, take all these other things into consideration mm-hmm. and oh. think about what people are going to read off of it a and, little more than we did. Well, and, and I think he did to a degree because, I mean, we've never had anything on the television coming out and grabbing people's faces. So, I mean, there, there is definitely, and there's that eerie aspect of it that we did mention throughout the, the podcast. We did, I mean, it definitely had a fear factor. Especially because it, I think it, because you're taking something like your grandmother and removing and making her the monster in that case, it really kind of hits home. Especially wow. since, <laughs> that's what you get for wearing my glasses. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, I, this story I have mixed feelings on. This is actually a story I watched with my mother which is a very odd, because usually I don't watch Doctor Who with my mother ever. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Like, I don't think I could picture you actually watching Doctor Who with anyone in your family that isn't your children. I've never watched Doctor Who with my mother. I have with my mother-in-law, though. Oh, there you go. See, mother-in-law is cool. Well, and then that, that also enjoyed... means my mother is cool, because that's the same woman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my mom actually enjoyed the episode, and she's not a Doctor Who fan at all. But she, she liked, A, she liked the setting, which is why one of the reasons why I liked it, too. She loved the idea of, of this happening during the time of the Queen's coronation, because she remembers the Queen's coronation. She was alive when it was going on. So I think that kind of hit home for her. When and was your mom born? 1943. Wow. We love that. Okay. She was born in the middle of World War II. How old is she now? 77. Makes me That's just think about how old the queen is. Hmm? Made me think about how old the queen is right now, this episode. Yeah, well, in the episode, the queen was in her 20s. No, no, he, he means, like, how old the queen is in real life right now. Yeah, like oh, today, like... 90, 96? Yeah. yeah. Has she been Love Queen that. Victoria in Longest Reign? I wonder what she's eating. Oh, I forgot <laughs> to mention the news, sir. Mention the news, the guy, tell us. The guy who played Billy Shipton. Uh, in in Blink, he passed away. The oh, older no. Oh, yeah, I mm-hmm. saw that. Wait, the old one or the young one? The older one. Well, that, that's better. Yeah. He was also in two other Doctor Who stories. He was in um, The Face of Evil, the Tom Baker story with Sarah Jane Smith. Oh, yeah? Um, he was, he was a, one, of the, one of the speaking roles um, with all the soldiers that had crashed onto the planet where the antimatter beast was. And he also was a reporter in a John Pertwee story, The Ambassadors of Death. Wow. Um, He's in a lot of Doctor Who interaction, really. Well, yeah, because Ambassadors of Death was seven episodes. I kind of wish I made a post on him when I first saw it. I could have been like, here's this black Doctor Who actor that doesn't get enough credit, but was actually pretty awesome and has been there for a long time. I really liked the younger Billy Shipton a lot. I thought that he was a very compelling actor. Oh, he would have been a great companion. Yeah. Well, it's never too late to make a post, and I'm really glad that we secretly have still been recording this episode since we've been having this conversation, so our audience (laughs) can also know the news. Can I say one more thing, then? Yeah, you can say all the things. Well, it's not going to make her happy, but I discovered why I feel like David Tennant's Goosebumpiness makes it goosebumpiness to me. 
goosebumpy to me and kind of pushes me away from the episodes we've been watching. And that is something as stupid as kind of like the camera angles. Like, it's kind of like oh, a very old yeah. school rock and roll music video. Like, if you were watching a Twisted Sister music video before the song starts, and it's like a little kid with a camera aimed down on them, and an adult with like the camera like aimed up, just like the camera angles and the tilted like close ups and stuff like that, I feel makes it more like kid like and silly and predates it a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because I I noticed that, too. I thought it was, like, very jarring just that it was happening. I even mentioned it to Shelby as we were watching, like, look at the camera angles here. Because it really was, like, the domineering Mr. Connolly. Like, it made it look like he was 30 feet tall in comparison to his wife and child on the couch when they were switching between these two views. Yeah, and when I was in, like, high school and, like, first discovering, like, metal and stuff, I started listening to that kind of music, even though I'm not into that music anymore. And I'm like... This, if I were to watch these music videos, I'd be like, this is goofy, this is campy, this is, like, really stupid. And then I noticed some patterns, and I'm like, wait, this might be a reason that I'm not digging these episodes. And also a common theme in what I've been watching with David Tennant is that there is a lot of overacting. Like, I'm starting to realize my issue really isn't with David Tennant, because after this episode, like, he's a really strong actor. Like when he puts his foot down, he puts his foot down. But when he's loving, he's incredibly loving. It's just like the way it's being made doesn't give him justice for me personally. He has a strong range. I feel like it's the same thing with Jody. I, I think Jody is an awesome actress and she's great at portraying the doctor, but she doesn't get enough, you know, capital behind her to really make her magic, have one of those big, strong moments. You know, I feel like she she has range. David Tennant has incredible range. But, you know, I don't think it's always taken advantage of, you know, in, in the writing. I think in season four, David Tennant really shines. And I think that the writing and also just his interaction with Catherine Tate, um, who plays Donna, was just, it was just all really good. And maybe they fixed the camera angles, too. I'll have to pay attention this time around. But, they do. Um, they do. The, so, next section, the next two episodes are, are very different in their camera angles. Yeah. I just like that I was able to notice what I didn't like about it. Because I just realized it was just kind of lame of me to be like, oh, I don't like this, I don't like this. But if I figure out why I don't like it, I'm able to see the things I do like, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, you'll you'll notice a huge difference in camera angles in the next episodes. The next two episodes were well, direct- it's camera angles, it's characters, it's you well, know, flaws in, like, the villains and storylines. Yeah, the ne- I, I do believe the next two episodes will be vastly different. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us. Please join us for those next two episodes, <laughs> for real. I think we will actually be ending the recording. Or okay. will we? Bye, everyone. <laughs> or will we? Stay tuned, guys.